episode 12 of Cultural Capital. I'm Andy Hazel. I'm Eloise Ross. And joining us today is a special guest who you might know from the conversation from one of Melbourne's finest bookstores, Readings, from her academic work in the film world, specifically the emotional repercussions of disruptive aesthetics. It's Felicity Ford. Hello. Hey, thanks for joining us. <laughs> no problem. Thank you for having me. And today we'll be discussing the new film Keeping Up with the Joneses, Australian classic Malcolm, and selecting our picks for what's happening on movie. But first, The Neon Demon. I see 20 or 30 girls come in here every day from small towns with big dreams. Some girls crack under the pressure. You, you're going to be great. What's it feel like to walk into a room? It's like in the middle of winter. You're the sun. It's everything. The Neon Demon is uh, Nicholas Winding Refn's new film. Uh, a trying satire of the fashion industry set in Los Angeles, centering on 16-year-old Jessie, played by Elle Fanning, an aspiring model who hits the ground running when she arrives in the city, staying at a strangely glowing but deadbeat motel in Pasadena. Jessie is befriended by makeup artist Ruby, played by Jenna Malone, and photographer boyfriend hopeful Dean Carl Glusman, so she's gaining some family in the city but her beauty and success go very quickly to her head. What continues is a very unsubtle critique of the vampiric and exploitative nature of the fashion industry, youth and beauty in the big city. Um, so Flick, did you find much appeal in this depiction of Los Angeles as a neon demon or were you left behind for the ride? <laughs> well, I had a lot of anticipation about seeing this. Um, I even, when I got my new bike, named it the Neon Demon. Because <laughs> I assumed I would really love the film. And my bike is really neon. But I did really love all the visuals. And I loved the soundscape. But I there's just something that has, has been sort of like bothering me about it. And I saw it first at MIF and then again more recently um, at, at Nova with, with the Q&A. I think... I don't know, my main issue I think would be with how how he's conflating female identity with beauty and I think that sometimes that's kind of at the crux of it. I was w wanting it to be a bit more radical. Okay, so you think that he, all he was saying was that the only part, the only thing that women have to appreciate is their beauty? Well, he's been, he's been interviewed a few times and he, about like his inspiration for this and he talks about like, I have this beautiful wife. I, you know, I wonder what it must be like to be so beautiful. And yeah, yeah. that would be interesting starting point. But I just think that I just wanted more interrogation of that. Mm. And I just, yeah. What was it like seeing it a second time? Well, it was kind of nice to have my initial gut feeling <laughs> solidified and being like, yes, I do. There is something about this that I don't like. Right. So that was kind of nice to know that it wasn't just like myth fatigue yeah yeah, yeah. So. i found it an incredibly slow sort of turgid film i just mm. was kind of i'm being pretty cruel but i was brought out of my mind yeah it was just like yeah. hurry up you know i'm all for you know slow pacing mm. and really appreciating the scene and focusing on style you know and moving through spaces with purpose i suppose there wasn't enough to grab me that i felt it deserved 
that amount of time on each kind of scene. Yeah, and the trailer. I had only just recently seen the trailer for it. The trailer looks great. I was like, I want to see that film. <laughs> I've never watched my... I haven't seen the trailer, but I was oh. thinking, like, it kind of seems like a movie that is just a trailer. <laughs> yeah. A trailer, and yeah. it doesn't really... I mean, it doesn't really explore anything beyond the surface. It basically just presents, you know, beauty is everything. Hollywood is destructive. Um, you know, women, yeah. women are just, you know, kind of these shallow beings. It's interesting because I wonder whether, just play devil's advocate, that people would respond that that's exactly what he's trying to draw attention to, like this idea of the of surface and surface beauty and therefore like part of that could be like not having anything behind that. And he does play that's around true. with that in like other films. Like I feel Bronson plays around with that with sort of masking and... and um, never really understanding what's going on behind the characters and like all those dead stares that he focuses on you yeah. know like he, he does that a lot and, and you know um ryan gosling is a great example where it's like this beautiful image but then so little dialogue yeah a lot of yeah. his roles and a lot of like style over substance yeah but then that's meant to be in those roles it's meant to be this really fascinating character study but i don't know mm. neon demon i just yeah. felt empty. Andy? Yeah, well, I was perhaps more taken in by the aesthetics because it is true, the style of a substance argument with him, I think, because sometimes I feel like he thinks he's being much deeper than he actually is, or he's thinking he can just rely on a really well, beautifully framed shot, which is perfectly lit, or a really interesting face, or the dead gaze, or something like that, mm. and then that's going to say something about the themes of the film, but I really feel like that's kind of, he just seems to take this kind of lazy option sometimes where I feel like he could interrogate oh, yeah. things deeper. Yeah. Mm. Or he's, been, he's got these beautiful things to play with. He's got these fantastic actors. He's got really interesting ideas and mm. themes, but then it just comes across in a fairly dissatisfying way. So yeah, I saw that trailer too, and I was really looking forward mm. to this thinking, this is going to be a fantastic you know, subject for him because he's so great at picking up these, these you know, really memorable shots mm. and putting things together in a really interesting way. And there was so much aesthetically appealing that I didn't really feel it was quite as turgid because I always thought oh man that's gorgeous or this is beautiful or why is he using this symbolism instead of actually showing a fashion right. performance yeah. I just thought every single you know kind of symbol that he tried to use or metaphor that he tried to draw on was so obvious so yeah. there was nothing for me to be fascinated by some of it looked beautiful that iconic shot you know that's on the poster I think or you know was the kind of in the myth guide of Ella Fanning on the couch, you know, mm. with kind of the blood, you know, in that, mm. um, you know, kind of sexual assault abuse position with her throat slit, you know, it was all makeup, but just kind of, you know, pouring down her body. That was, that's stunning. That opening mm. shot is stunning, you know, which comes after the credits, which I really loved and were really engaging because the credits, you know, are all these flashes of colour and light, mm. yeah. really getting yeah. you in involved with, with the score as well, yeah. kind of on the beat with Cliff Martinez's score. So I was really mm. into it for the first couple of minutes. There was just something really strange about the editing in that opening scene. It was the long shot of her on the couch. Then there was a close-up of her face to show us her makeup, I assume. But it was very off-putting for me because it is a long shot. It's a point of view shot from the photographer's perspective because he's standing far away taking this photo of her on the couch, then a close-up of her face, and then it cuts back to his perspective. And you, there's never any point at which he would have been up close mm. for that to happen. And not that, you know, that's the only way to depict yeah. what's going on in a scene, but I found that very... I felt like it would have been more engaging if that shot of her, her face up close came at the end of the scene before it cut to her going to get her makeup cut off yeah and that was really jarring for me and just from that moment i kind of was like what's going on like everything 
is like there's just some some strange stuff that's happening here some strange moods like I found a lot of the outdoor lighting you know that dark blue really like you could barely see anything that was going on at the motel at the house at the end the blue lighting mm. was was really hard to kind of get a sense of what was mm. happening I've sort of found I, I suppose I had really been hoping that it would be this because he mainly figures around like male characters mm. and um this always yeah I, I think that when I heard it was going to be these female leads and mm. and I was really impressed with the cast and things like that I was really hoping it would sort of have some sort of that the um, Jessie would have some sort of agency. I kept waiting for her to come mm. into the, her own. And there was moments where she does, where she has that um, conversation with her boyfriend or whoever that guy, you know, the photographer who yeah. maybe is going to be her boyfriend. And she says something to the effect of, um, he's like, do you want to be like those people? And she's like, no, they want to be like me. Yeah. And I thought I wanted to see more of that. And I was really expecting him to like build on that and for her to become like even more like powerful. But I felt that her moments of being really empowered and having agency because she is like seen as this beautiful thing mm. and beauty is power it was so fleeting she gets that totally. one moment and there's no character development she just switches she becomes yeah. like this innocent who is you know ready to be shaped and then all of a sudden switches yeah and she only gets that one fleeting moment where she sort of says that oh, I, I quite liked the like monologue about her mother calling her like um, what is it? Um, dangerous. Dangerous. Yeah. yeah. And I was like, that is a great little bit. Yeah. yeah. But it just was like, you need, it needed more and she needed to like really like, I think have some sort of climax of her character and it's just never any of that satisfaction. I think that whole thing of like the predator thing, I mean, I think he repeats it a lot through all those like big cats, you know, the big cat mm. in her apartment and then later on there's a stuffed. Oh, I know. Yeah. And I was like, we so get awesome. it. Yeah, exactly. You know, for their yeah. When, when Jenna Malone is putting lipstick on in the mirror, you know, there's this whole narrative about lipstick and how lipstick is empowering for a woman, which it totally is. I wear yeah. lipstick all the time and it makes me yeah. feel amazing. You know, I get it. But, like, he's, yeah, the, the script spends far too long on that, I think, and then she's putting lipstick on in the background, like, of the mirror, the reflection, there's that big cat, and you're like, oh, well, she is... You know, there's kind of this reference to like. I mean, I have, I don't not familiar with a lot of giallo, but Reffin is drawing on a lot of giallo references. But I assume that's a big reference to to cat people. You know, oh, yeah, you know, course. women as as cat, as predatory cats, yeah. and you know, um, <laughs> and it was just so obvious. And I was like, Come on, anyway. Mm, yeah, I was, I was a bit disappointed by the way that she seems to arrive into this town, and she briefly talks about her motivations, but she basically defines herself by rejecting everything around her gradually, mm. which seems to be an unusual mm. thing for a very lonely person who's lost their parents, who's mm. pretty much alone in this neon, you know, hellhole. Mm. Um, that there was never anything that she kind of seemed attracted toward. She was just kind of reacting to stuff. So there was never any attempt to give her interesting motivation, I thought. It was just more her responding to these predatory... Yeah. Mm. I sort of read her character, though, as... Because she's seen as, like, the pinnacle of beauty, I thought that she has nothing that she's longing for because she is... She's already made it. Like, she already is beauty that. is everything. Whereas yeah. everyone around her is actually like striving to be her although I just thought some of the stuff with I mean bringing it back to gender politics I just thought a lot of the male characters in it it was constantly like if you choose the beauty industry as something you're going to focus on a lot of um fashion women's fashion is for other women and I thought that they kind of missed that key point it's not the idea that they're looking for yeah authorizations it's not quite the right word but from the male characters I felt that that was a real misstep 
Yeah, because right. it was constantly in reference to the male photographers, the male fashion designer, the male, even the boyfriend, um, the sleaze bag at the, um, you know, Keanu Keanu Reeves. Reeves. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, maybe, you know, Reffin's thing in that was that even though he was focusing on a female lead as his character, he was still saying that the world or Los Angeles is controlled by men and that yeah. they still hold the power. And even though women are maybe, you know, making some inroads, mm. that we still have to, you know, serve them in, mm. in a sense. I actually liked um, the Australian actress, Abby Lee, is it? Kershaw, I think. Abby I Lee think Kershaw. they were both, oh, both of the blonde kind of cronies were both Australian. Oh, really? Okay, one the one who has the accent. The accent. Yeah, yeah, I liked Abby's. She, I liked the second time watching it. I was like, yeah. she's actually really, yeah. really interesting. Mm. And she actually, strangely enough, reminded me of Patsy. I'd seen like Abfab recently. <laughs> and that sort of like <laughs> masculine, feminine energy mm. that mm. both of them have. Like they're obviously like super glamorous, but because of all the artifice of the makeup and the yeah. costumes, yeah. they have this weird, almost like yeah in between yeah, they look yeah. A- I thought they were alien yeah well, there was yeah. incredibly cool yeah. I thought his, the, the uh, mise en scene was really interesting the way he kind of used these Victorian buildings or these huge mm. this architecture this diminished people that's quite interesting I mean the fact that he shot in LA rather than a le- legitimate fashion story would be in New York I mean there's not really that much you, that seems to happen in LA beyond being photographed and then you know there's even a point Christina Hendricks promises her then yeah, you'll go to New, New York, York. Yeah, yeah. yeah so it, it seems like it was this strange mix of being at the bottom of this industry, but at the same time you're being cowered by the, everything around you. Mm. Mm, yeah, I thought there was a few interesting decisions like that that he made that, that kept me distracted, maybe more than you. Yeah, mm-hmm. look, I keep I keep going back to in my mind that her, her her motel room and the you know the floral design on her bedspread and the wallpaper and the curtains. I just I love that so much. I love that kind of you know whole um, just Californian motel aesthetic. Um, there's something that's just kind of really crummy about it, but really stylish. I love that. I know it's kind of maybe daggy for me to focus on that as my key um, thing that I'm drawn to, but but I love the motel room anyway. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I just overall not really a big fan at all. I like Refn. I like Drive. I love Drive, and I've been watching it recently. Um, and it, you know, even in that, he he doesn't hide his refer is his you know references. He kind of wears them on his sleeve, wears his influence on his sleeve. But mm. I think he does a lot more interesting stuff with yeah. with the. F- Los Angeles figure and with the movement in the space in Los Angeles and kind of figuring out your environment in drive um, and it's a lot more shallow yeah I wonder if like I feel like with maybe with his other films he it's it's always been like um, really interesting interrogation of masculinity and I feel Mm. like maybe he just thought by flipping it he could also have like an interesting analysis of femininity or feminine identity but I was just like I think that that was a, a misstep you can't just simply inverse those and then it becomes a feminist yeah, film and really I know that he got he had um, a lot of um, women involved with the script development H- yeah it was written by it was his story but assisted in the screenwriting process by two women yeah mm. yeah but you know that doesn't necessarily mean that it's no. going to be a feminist film does it? <laughs> or you know something that or, appreciates yeah. women or is you know fully kind of um, appreciative of, of them as people. Yeah, or having women on screen just yeah. not necessarily. Because I suppose the reverse of that is I went to see Chevalier. Yeah. And they had yeah. Like a feminist yeah. film panel after that. And it's obviously a female director. Yeah. And it's all male cast. All male so. cast. I love that film. It's, yeah. 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 <laughs> it's, <so good. laughs> it's such an incredible, like, yeah, um, deconstruction of masculinity mm. and masculine power. In a quite a tender way that I yeah. thought that a lot of the 
comments Refn was making on um, female relationships was actually kind of a bit empty and nasty and I think that there's something I don't know if that competitiveness is always I think that it's yeah I don't know I'm, I, I just it's just a bit obvious <laughs> yeah isn't it yeah mm. so that's the Neon Demon that's out in limited release this week yeah 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 uh, and up next keeping up with the Joneses we're the Joneses such a lovely street. The Chinese don't even have a word for a street like this. They would say, <laughs> It sounds cool coming out of your mouth. <laughs> you don't think there's something off about them? They're both so overly accomplished and stylish. Welcome to the Cobra Club. A little different than you expected, huh? That looks like a real snake. Snake one, that's real Cobra. Do, do you have tab? Um, Keeping Up With The Joneses is a comedy directed by Greg Matola about a happily married couple, Zach Galifianakis and Isla Fisher, who are surprised to find a very strange and even more happily married couple, played by John Hamm and Gail Godot, who move, who move in next door. So this couple are not only beautifully beautiful, classy, well-dressed, well-travelled and unnervingly good at darts, but they soon find out that there's much more than, than that. Um, what did you make of Keeping Up With The Joneses, Eloise? Um, okay, so I made Andy and I go and see this because I love John Hamm and he's <laughs> a good excuse. <laughs> yeah, definitely paid off because he's beautiful and charming the whole way through. At the end, he wears this very um, tight black roll neck and just looks, you know, divine. Anyway, basically, I might talk about John Hamm some more, but I, it's a silly film. Look, it doesn't really add anything to, um, you know, commentary on, um, you know, suburban. Uh, middle-class marriage and all of that it's a you know it's a film about this cul-de-sac they keep mentioning a cul-de-sac so this couple lives in a cul-de-sac that's beautiful you know it's very kind of um desperate housewives you know 1950s white picket fence perfect life is and that is that meant to be like a metaphorical dead end or <laughs> yeah i don't know i i no, don't think not. so okay. i read this kind of i was reading the the production notes actually and the screenwriter Michael Lasseur said something and it kind of about the cul-de-sac and it was really condescending he said um, he was fascinated by some of his friends living in a cul-de-sac and he was interested to explore like the idea of that he said it's so endearing and funny that people could find that much happiness in something that simple and I'm like, so he wanted to explore why it was simple, maybe, you know, from the outside, but it actually there was more going on beneath the surface. And I'm, that made me feel really like, okay, dude, I'm not really sure that that's like, you know, a very nice gesture towards your friends. Yeah, um, I grew up on a cul-de-sac. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I home. didn't grow up in a cul-de-sac, but I, it was a dead end, you know, so, you know, there was a park there, so I suppose we would call it a court in Australia, wouldn't we? Um... So it's basically, it's a ridiculous film from start to finish. It's an accessible comedy. I laughed quite a bit. There's been some commentary on it. It is, it's been panned by a lot of reviewers. I was kind of looking around and yeah. I was looking around. Maybe not all that memorable. It's not a laugh out loud comedy really, but I don't think it's necessarily trying no, to be. And that's what I found really strange about it is that it was trying to chuckle some. Like mm. you laughed a few times. There was nothing, there were laugh out loud moments. There were some nice observations. It was great mm. to see John Hamm doing comedy because he's mm. fantastic at that. It's mm. just the deadpan dry thing. I think he does it so well. Yeah, yeah. Um, Gal Gadot was fantastic. I thought she's so good. We're going to be seeing a lot of her soon when she's Wonder Woman. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. She was year. stunning, and and they had a really good chemistry. John Hamm and Gal Gadot. I really liked Isla Fisher, and I 
liked her, even though this is a bit silly, I liked her character development. So she starts off as kind of like not a bored wife living in the suburbs you know they've got two kids and they send them off to summer camp so then it's like they they're free to do what they want for the entire summer and they they she has a a very nice and loving relationship with her husband Zach Galifianakis but I really liked her character development throughout the film so she starts off as being kind of unsure and really a bit jealous of of Gal Gadot's character kind of envious and um, really meek but she you know, as they go through these ridiculous scenarios these um, and have to, you know, shoot people and hide from, and, you know, jump out a hotel window into a pool, she gets really badass. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I love it. I really yeah. liked her kind of, you know, growing into herself and then being like, I'm going to own my life in the suburbs and I'm not going to want anything else. I'm just going to be very happy with who I am. And I really like that. And Isla Fisher is great. We don't see enough of her either in films so she's and she's also quite fun. like she's a very good comic actress i think yeah like, she actually is. yeah she's very I mean, funny ing direct ads probably oh my God. Desired, but. <laughs> yeah she does look good in orange though <laughs> yeah um but i really i just like this film that it engaged with you know like the board suburb i liked it it was a little bit you know dry i suppose you know there's a lot in that the board suburbia trope the imperfect marriage beneath the perfect image trope. That's been done before. It was there. I don't know. The tired suburban par- parents having no sex life trope I thought was funny to begin with and they did kind of try and ram it into us. The underwhelming supervillain trope was okay. You know, not hilarious, as you said, Andy, but I did quite like it at the end. I was a bit annoyed. Both both wives and actually there's a third couple um, and I don't really know what happened to them in the end. I feel like that was a bit of a plot hole. But there's a third couple. And all three of them, at one point in the film, ha- the wives have this, like, nagging wife position. And that really pissed me off. Not dwelled on and if they all get over it and, you know, the, the husbands kind of don't make a big deal out of it. And it's not like they talk, you know, they talk about their nagging wives, but it's definitely there. And it's something that I just thought was maybe too easy. And given what the screenwriter Michael Lasser has said in these production notes, that doesn't surprise me that he's put that in there, those mm. um, kind of characters in there. I know I seem to be saying kind of a lot of negative stuff about it, but I did really enjoy it. I came out of yeah, it and I was in a very good mood. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of confused as to why this was made because it is quite a low-key. It's not really aiming to be... Well, like It's basically a, a, a family action comedy, I suppose. And those films yeah. tend to be terrible. Like Date Night, nobody really got that excited about Date Night. Yeah. Manhattan Murder Mystery reminded me a little bit of, just in the nosy neighbour, what's oh, going yeah. on. Yeah, yeah. Things. I mean, but I wouldn't put it up there. <laughs> but it is, um, it is a stra- it's occupying a strange position. And I think the first half an hour, bef- while they're, it's taking a long time to unravel this whole mm. what's happening with the next-door neighbours thing, which you all you know right from the beginning because you've seen the ad or the poster. Yeah. And we'll kind of clue you in to, as to what's going on. And that's very low-key. There's not, like, any... There's no hilarity for the first half hour. So I think people are just going to switch off if they're watching it on Netflix or something like that or anywhere else because it's just not going to engage you. But then the action starts to come in and then it starts going, taking a few... making a few interesting choices. Yeah, I quite like the action scenes. There were two major action scenes and I quite liked them. Yeah, I just don't know if that's going to be enough. So I think... Um, I'm not surprised it's got terrible reviews it's probably going to tank in the box office and I don't think it's got much of a life on streaming but I do find him an interesting director like Adventureland is interesting mm, Sid mm. Bad had some interesting moments mm. Paul was pretty cool you know but it's yeah, yeah. He doesn't, I like all of them yeah I mean they've all got good casts yeah. they've got great ideas but then it just all seems to be nothing they're all decent 
It's just not amazing. With it's, the odd slightly offensive Caitlyn Jenner joke. There was a oh, very really? poor taste, and mm. I did have to do some research, and Andy found it for me. But I came out of it, and I was like, did they make a, a trans joke? Mm. And they did, yes. in fact. Yeah, yeah it was a, a Caitlyn Jenner joke. Very unfortunate and just yeah. really unpleasant. Really like, why would you need it. to resort really, to that? Yeah. Yeah. It's a really weird choice to make. Yeah, and it was, you know, it was very brief. It was There was almost no, you know no point to it yeah not yeah. that there's a point to those things anyway but yeah that yeah was, that was a confusing moment yeah like, well it, not only is it offensive but it's dated yeah like, before it yeah. was even mm. screened so. yeah i mean it does have a great tempo great style i think um very it's very polished mm. so all of those things are in its favor just maybe you know it's slightly uninteresting in some other ways do you, okay. think they, do you think they made the choice with the casting for that to deliberately pick people who have this other intertextuality to you? Like, obviously, mm. you know, with, like, um, Mad Men and also with, like, Wonder Woman. Being like, Wonder Woman, yeah. yeah. Do you think that they've sort of deliberately... I haven't seen the film, but okay. I think that they're... Pi- yeah, you could resting be right. on the laurels was... of, like, <laughs> you may know them from. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> possibly. Big stars, but a really medium um, budget film. Mm. Not sure. Mm. Um, I can't believe we spent this long talking about Keeping Up With The Joneses, which is opening wide this week. Yes. <laughs> From a man afraid of everything. I can't give you any more milk. You haven't paid me for three weeks. To a man afraid of nothing. Are you a neat and tidy person who makes his stroke her own bed and washes the dishes. Oh, listen, I just want a room. His life would never be the same the day Frank and Judith came to stay. I just got out of jail. So, I mean, if you're going to blabber that all around the place, we might as well pack up and leave now. You're not going to leave, are you? Malcolm, a comedy of hopes and schemes. And now to Malcolm, which is a 1986 film by Nadia Tass, shot in Melbourne um, on a pretty small budget. Oh, really? Yeah. It made quite a lot of money. Yeah, it did do really well. Uh, yeah. Um, and this, uh, in the opening scenes of the film, Colin Friel's character, Malcolm, um, he gets fired from his job at the Melbourne Tramways Authority for building his own tram and taking it on a joyride through the city. But within this few scenes, he's taken, uh, taken in a border to save money in the house that he lives in, in the form of John Hargrave's Frank and Frank's girlfriend, Judith, who's played by Lindy Davis. It doesn't take them long to lure him and his uh, uh, mechanical genius into a life of crime. There's, this um, film seems to occupy a very, very dear um, place in the heart of a lot of Australian film appreciators. It won mm-hmm. eight AFI awards. I think every single one it was nominated for. Okay. Um, Nadia Tass was the first woman to win a direct, Best Director goal from the AFI too. Oh, was she? Great. Yeah, um, and it's got a very interesting backstory. There's still a lot of the places um, that Mal- Malcolm is shot in you can see, mm-hmm. such as the pub, I believe. The pub is still there, yeah. Yes, Andy yes. and I are on our way to, <laughs> to go and have a beer there when we <laughs> shot some of the pub scenes. The reason I chose this film, kind of wanted us to watch it, is because it's the 30-year anniversary of its release this year, so it's kind of has a, a big... Um, there's a lot of attention being paid to it at the moment, I suppose. The, the famous car that's split in half. Yeah. Um, I think that... Two, two or three of those were actually made. I was kind of listening to some inter- three were made. I was listening to some interviews with the director um, and the the screenwriter David Parker, who their husband and wife team, um, and it was it's on display or it was on display um, in the NFSA earlier this month. Um, I believe it's the largest film prop that is being is held in the NFSA. Wow. Um, 
holdings. Yes. But anyway, so that's kind of the reason I wanted to mm. return to it. Um, and I had never seen it, so I watched this film and I just loved it. I think I was firstly drawn in because I just adore Colin Fields' <laughs> portrayal. He's so perfect as this, like, meek, kind of unsure person and he has the, you know, he embodies that character so well he just looks down he can't look people in the eye yeah he's really shy he moves he kind of you know shuffles along rather than walking properly he instantly like dissolves into the character Mm. no longer like he's obviously such a well-known actor i don't know just straight away it's very believable everything i just yeah i was really impressed by him as a character like Mm. very believable so much complexity in just little movements and interactions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he, even though he's, you know, shy, he's so enthusiastic about his life, you can see, about, you know, making making all of these, you know, he's like a, a technical genius, basically, and he makes all of these miniature trams. That amazing, when because he doesn't like to go outside and get the mail, so he's got that train that just as soon as the mail gets delivered, it comes to his window. I love that. So he does all of that. It's just really fun and really sweet. And I think as a, you know, made in 1986 I think it was you know as a, as a presentation of you know because everyone talks about the Australian male on screen and you know you've got the Bushman um the battler the larrikin the mate mm. um you know and he's he's not any of those he's so this true. other character that is really sensitive and it just a really kind of beautiful portrayal of of an Australian character on screen and that complete lack of aggressiveness yeah I think is really interesting because we'd usually sort of not only link that up with like national identity but a masculine identity and it's like it's it was quite beautiful to see yeah and you do have that character you know that um, aggressiveness in Frank who is an ex-con yes, and kind of yeah. he's you know it's it's a film about the triumph of um, intellectual genius over uh, aggressiveness mm. um, because Frank has one theft of you know televisions from a warehouse and he almost gets caught it's Frank in the end who who achieves you know the great uh, the great um, heist so yeah, yeah definitely and that car is so fantastic so great so the fact great. that they it's so well they made it's operational mm. and that they yeah so it was an actual car a honda 1970 honda z i think i don't know anything about cars but that's what and they actually cut it in half with an angle grinder and they put like two bodies of of like motorbikes in in each anyway it's fascinating Mm. Yeah, that's one of the things I find interesting watching it 30 years later is the things that stand out to me are the sense of community in mm-hmm. Collingwood, mm. the fact that there's people looking out for each other, which I find <laughs> such an early <laughs> concept in this day and age in Melbourne. Yeah, the woman in the milk bar. Yeah. 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 That was a lovely interaction. Yeah, yeah. Was that, that, sort of, that sort of stuff. And also the fact that there's clearly no CGI. It's all The fact that it's all models and it's all mm. real, it's tactile, it's got this kind of quality to it. And that seems to be what dominates all discussion of this that I found when I was looking, mm. reading up about it and seeing mm. what people have written about it because a lot of people have gone back and reassessed it as yeah. as an unusual Australian film. Um, and this seems they everybody the American reviews are particularly excited about this yeah. idea of this quaintness, this cuteness, this um, idea of making stuff and uh, it, and the stories behind each of these things. Um, yeah. So there, there's that quality to it which I really like. But I find as soon as they move away from that and they start looking at the family dramas and that sort of stuff, it starts to it's not because the acting is fantastic all the way through, but there's quite, the writing I found sort of lapsed into this fairly predictable. Stuff. And there was a lot of casual misogyny and violence and stuff, which I'm sure was accurate at the time, but mm. I, I find that just kind of grated and took me out of the picture a little bit. 
Did what do you mean the concentration on family, you know, family drama? Oh, uh, well, the, between um, between Judith and Frank, I thought that was there was just right. Like, there was just they were just going to violence straight away. I mean, it was to show his how his, yeah. his hair trigger temper and stuff like that. That was a strange and, relationship. And that why one, is she with him? Yeah, why is she with him exactly? Yeah, he's never he's never nice that. to her, you know. Mm. Um, so that was kind of. A, a strange, yeah. a strange mm. thing. Or why she, she supports him going back into a life of crime when he's just come out of jail and you'd assume she wouldn't want him to go back in. That's true, that's a Yeah, because yeah, otherwise you wouldn't have a movie, I guess. <laughs> yeah, there's that. So, uh, yeah, I felt there was a few things that the job kind of dropped the ball a bit there for me. But um, but overall, I thought it was really interesting. I mean, you could, there's always the thrill of seeing Melbourne in 1986 yeah. <laughs> yeah. and seeing what's there. And the lack of advertising I found amazing. Like, right, <laughs> right. Just inside pubs, there was no ad for beer or anything anywhere. And then when he takes his little tram, you know, all across the bridge by Centre Street Station, it's no billboards. Yeah. You know, that, was kind of that stuff that's really I love. Funny. Yeah, I think the place, like, was yeah, so lovely. Yeah, the city. Love, love yeah. seeing Melbourne in, you know, that time of history of yeah. what the city is. And I think that, that there's been like a trend towards erasing city or or signifiers or markers of the city. Being and Melbourne I, shot film? Um, or just Australian cinema in general. Right. I feel like there's a sort of tendency to maybe to appeal to like a global audience. And I think this happens <coughs> across the board in like a lot of other national cinemas is, is a move away from national cinema, mm. which would be markers of, of where you are and place. Yeah, yeah. And it's so nice to have that, like to return back to that where... I don't know what why there's that shift, but I, I do think that's something that happens where you, there's less focus on where are you now. Or, you yeah, know. I think you're mm. right. Just using setting for what it's like, you know, what it's um, narrative or aesthetic appeal is rather than as a location. Mm. Yeah, and I think it's, you can tie that into the way film so films get funded now too, where the money would have gone to these you know affectionate passion projects like. Love and other catastrophes or something like this, which is mm. you know a really tiny budget. Obviously, the you know the writers and director adore their subjects. But instead, you know, there's the lure of luring Hollywood productions here and making everything in the CGI world, so you don't see any Australia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. In the background. Yeah, yeah, and all you see is a, yeah a CGI city that doesn't have any actual you know real link to what it is portraying because it's just a computer. Mm. Yeah. Um, or you have like a, a mishmash where you've yeah. got in Clever Man a sort of mishmash of oh right like, yeah of locations and yeah. Yeah, taking away markers. Of okay, right. Yeah. yeah, it's a really, this is a really beautiful film. I love it. I mean, you know, maybe there are problems with it. I didn't focus on those so much. I think I was, I had just fallen in love with Malcolm, the character. So that kind of made me a bit blind to, to anything <laughs> else that was going on, which is not, you know, the most perfect way to consume film, I know, um, as someone who is interested in it critically, but, but that's the way I engage with it. Yeah, it's nice to have a strong character. I feel like there's... Yeah, and I read um, when I was reading this morning, David Parker, the screenwriter, said um, he kind of composed Malcolm or conceived Malcolm as this modern-day Buster Keaton type, which you can totally see in the Mm. way he moves around. And he doesn't talk a lot and he's very deadpan because he is so, so shy and he's very physical and he's a genius, you know, and so you can kind of get that sense very much. Mm. When the film came out in the 80s, um, some critics had an ethical dilemma about whether the film promoted a life of crime or oh, whether there was a lack of uh, comeuppance for people who committed crimes. Did you find that was a problem for you? When you um, it's interesting because I teach censorship and so one of the things we focus on is uh, the different classification rules and yeah this idea of um promoting crime or instruction to crime is is pretty key i would actually argue that it's it's part of australian cinema we have this sort of glorification from ned kelly of criminals yeah so i don't think i think that it's 
in an Australian context, mm. I think it's completely fine because that is something that, you know, you can even see with like the Underbelly series that became really popular. We've got this obsession with yeah, that. Yeah, you're absolutely sort of, right. I mean, like yeah, we you spurn know. authority. Yeah. Um, we, we appreciate the underdog. Well, white Australians would mm. be convicts. Yeah. <laughs> so I think, there's, I think that that is part of like uh, at least how nationhood is maybe conceived in, yeah. on a cinema screen or TV screen. So I didn't think that was proper problematic. Mm. And there's a literal evocation of Ned Kelly in this film as well. The, the point where there's the the animatronic Ned Kelly comes down. Right, yeah. He's yeah. used in one, of the, one of the heists as well. Yes. So, yeah, there's, <laughs> of course. There's a nice acknowledgement of that. Yeah, yeah. definitely. Mm. Yeah, I, I did struggle a bit with um, actually connecting to Malcolm as a character because okay. obviously he can't explain how he's feeling. It's not part of his thing. But then watch observing him and I found I found his transition from this shy reclusive person to this yeah. life this willingness to take risks and yeah. in, in, in this appeal I'm never quite sure why that appealed I, I think he was just maybe I don't know happy that he finally had a chance to do something with his his technological inventions you know and his you know, his things that he was making and it was a chance to you know play with his toys Basically. Yeah, but then there's a moral step as well because there was this idea of he, where he's obviously not doing it for the money because money mm-hmm. isn't a big thing for him. He kind of seems to need realize that to he gets money to be able to buy stuff to yeah. make stuff. But then that the, there was never any discussion. I mean, it wasn't really possible, I, I, I suppose. But I've, there's other films and other depictions of autistic people or people who have Asperger's or somehow on that spectrum. Yeah, where I felt you could empathize a little more. Yeah, and, and and there's also this slight. I don't know if it's a big problem with Malcolm, but I know that there's a slight. I've, I've experienced a slight problem with autistic people who have very handy and useful skills, like card counting in Rain Man or Malcolm's ability yeah. to. It's a very like yeah. cardboard cutout. Yeah, yeah, and, and I understand this is really affectionate and you know based on a real person mm. and this sort of stuff. But I thought that was just a little bit of a step too far sometimes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, because I mean, like, what's eating Gilbert Grape? You know, there's oh, yeah. d- there's quite a few other depictions. Even the Imitation Game, you know, this. Oh yeah. You know, I've kind of connected with those characters. Yeah. Even though they just do rather than say as a way of understanding them. I mean, there's, and I think in recent, maybe through TV shows and things like that, there's been like a lot more focus on, or maybe literacy around, mm-hmm. um, yeah, um, people with autism or at least sort of on the autism spectrum. Um, That's true. But it, I think it can get a bit problematic because people also refer to on the spectrum and it's, it's a, yeah. often used in like a disparaging way. I think this film wasn't about that. I mean, you know, not to say that it couldn't have gone there, but it was a mm. comedy and it was kind of a ridiculous um, fantasy almost mm. rather than yeah. something that was interested in exploring the effects of, of you know, um, his personality. And do you think it was like that old sort of, um, what is it, like strange bedfellows sort of pairing of like, mm. obviously these are two very yeah. different men and they're, they're caught up. So it's almost totally. just the, the humour at the situation mm. of like, this mm. is funny because these two would never... They would never actually hang out. Them. Yeah, there would never be any crossover. Yeah. <laughs> and now they're living together. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, anyway, you know, not a perfect film, but a very enjoyable one yes, and an mm. um, important in Melbourne's history. Yes. Mm. <laughs> For Um, so finally we'll close out with our picks from this fortnight's uh, new additions to movie or possibly even older films that are still on movie that may be running out soon 
Is there anything that stood out for you, Eloise, from the current batch? Well, I'm actually really excited about the film that was announced today called Before the Rain by, and excuse my pronunciation, this Macedonian filmmaker, Milcho Machevsky, um, from 1994. Um, it's just a, uh, has a, like a fascinating sounding, this director has a fascinating sounding filmography, and I'm only referring to titles here. I have no, no knowledge of him beyond that, but he looks like an interesting person. And the the kind of blurb on movie made it look like this magnificent critical perspective of maybe orthodox Christianity in wartime. Movie says it's got like a kind of it deals with simmering ethnic and religious hatred. Um, and it looked like it does that with a background of kind of like a magnificent landscape cinematography. So I'm, I'm very keen to check that one out. It won Best Film at Venice and I think it was a, the Academy Award nominee for um, mm, that's right. uh, Best Picture. Mm. But I didn't win that year. But anyway, it looks fascinating. So. I'm keen to check that out. And also, just a bit of an obvious one, they've got Alfred Hitchcock's Secret Agent on there. Mm. <laughs> um, I didn't that. Yeah, it's on YouTube too. I was just watched a, a small section of it and it's much better transfer, it has much better sound. So if you um, are wanting to watch it on YouTube, I'd say go in the direction of movies so you can get a high quality John Gilgood and Peter Laurie. <laughs> no. You do want the highest quality possible. Yeah. So <laughs> yes. Anyway, that's what I'm looking forward to, in addition mm. to, to what else we've said. Um, Felicity, was there anything that stood out to you? Yeah, so mine, yeah, mine would be House on Jellyfisher Born, French film from 1960. Um, it just looks beautiful, and um, yeah, I'm just quite excited about that. And there was another one called The Shame, which is about two parents who want to get rid of their child after the child starts sort of exhibiting some strange behaviour and I just thought that was a fascinating yeah it just sounds kind of I, I always really love like tense family drama where yeah. it like <laughs> brings up lots of ethical yeah. um, problems so hopefully yeah. the child has some opportunity to be a, a little bit evil yeah 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 <laughs> I'm kind of hoping for a Hanukkah okay yes, <laughs> right. of, you know <laughs> seventh continent mm, style cool <laughs> Uh, so my pick for uh, my recommendation is Saints on a Wet Afternoon, which is a 1964 film by Brian Forbes um, in which Richard Attenborough and Kim Stanley play an unhappily married couple, couple living in a rambling gothic mansion in London. You soon find out that they're um, unhappy because of a miscarriage in their past and she seems to be struggling as a, to make her name as a psychic and so she convinces her husband to kidnap the child from, of a wealthy couple and then she can use her psychic powers in the press to get fame and fortune and of course things don't go according to plan it's a stunning um stunningly claustrophobic film that really is very polanskyish and hitchcockian in parts and it's just carried by these two incredible performances it's also like an interesting look at london in the mid 60s it's um, black and white uh, there's a lot of you know, there is a couple of seances that take place that are quite creepy on but, wet afternoons um in one case yes okay. but overwhelmingly it's about grief and about this dynamic between the two of them which is just yeah, remarkable. And S sounds right up thick in my eyes. Yeah, yeah. that's that great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, and Kim Stanley's remarkable. She's uh, she was a Broadway actress who's who her accent does stumble sometimes because she's being English, but she's uh, clearly not handling like doing it that well. But she's still got an Academy Award nomination. And the next film she was in was in 1982, which she got an Academy Award nomination for as well. A film called Francis. Uh, but this, yeah, this is just blew me away. I was yeah. really surprised. By Someone that. else recommended it to me as well, so mm, that's on my list. Yeah, yeah, definitely worth catching. Yeah, go movie. Mm. <laughs> keep, keep up with the good stuff. Cool. Well, thank you very much for making it to the end of episode twelve of the Cultural Capital. Uh, you can find us at uh, on Twitter at the Cult Cap Pod or on Facebook at Cultural Capital Podcast. And Felicity, where can people find you online? Oh, um, I have an 
academia webpage. Um, <laughs> I've also got uh, some articles that I've written on conversation. Um, and oh, I do have Twitter that I sometimes write about film on. Yeah, can we uh, contact you there? Yeah, the fickle kitten. Great. Good yeah. name. And Eloise? Contact me on Twitter at Eloise Lowe Ross. And I'm at Andy Ricky. Yeah, and if you get a chance to head on to our iTunes page and um, give us a rating and maybe even a review, if you like, it would be very helpful That'd for be us. That would be great. Yeah, if you like listening to us, we'd love to hear from you. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. And thanks a lot for joining us for listening. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you.